Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 began with a statement of principle. Whereas it is essential to just government that we recognize the equality of all men before the law and hold that it is the duty of government in its dealings with the people to mete out equal and exact justice to all of whatever nativity, race, color, or persuasion, religious or political, and it being the appropriate object of legislation to enact great fundamental principles into law, therefore, And then Congress, through its 14th Amendment, Section 5 enforcement power, says that all persons in the United States shall be entitled to the full and equal enjoyment of the accommodations, advantages, facilities, and privileges of inns, public conveyances on land or water, theaters, and other places of public amusement, subject only to the conditions and limitations established by law and applicable to citizens of every race and color, regardless of any previous condition of servitude. The great fundamental principle is that we all should be equal before the law, and Congress enacted that great principle by requiring restaurants, inns, hotels, theaters, transportation, and other places that are open to serve the public not to deny service to anyone on account of race or color. That act was the subject of litigation in the civil rights cases of 1883. Some history here is going to be helpful. After the Civil War, the federal government had enacted and enforced a series of laws to protect black citizens and their fundamental rights. Under those policies, black leaders in the South won seats in the state legislature, in the U.S. House and Senate, some as lieutenant governors and one as a governor of Louisiana. In total, there was somewhere around 1,500 elected black leaders during this time. And that provoked an enormous backlash among Southern white Democrats who sought to reestablish political control through violence. We saw the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and congressional laws aimed at protecting people from that kind of vigilante violence and safeguarding their political rights. That era, known as Reconstruction, comes to an end in 1877. The presidential election that year had come to a standstill with accusations of widespread fraud and particularly allegations that black citizens in the South had been prevented from casting ballots. Congress appointed a commission to investigate, and the commission then brokered a compromise to allow the Republican Rutherford Hayes into the White House in exchange for a federal government retreat from the project of Southern Reconstruction. Democrats disenfranchised black voters, took control of state houses, passed laws mandating the separation of the races, and then ushered in the era of Jim Crow. That's the context, then, of the civil rights cases in 1883, where the Supreme Court is asking whether this national law providing for the full and equal enjoyment of public accommodations for everyone, regardless of race or color, is constitutional. In those cases, the Supreme Court held that Congress had no authority to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1875 in the first place. The technical legal argument was this. The 14th Amendment says that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. But when some business owner declines to serve someone because of their race, the state is not involved in that decision. It's a private rather than a public act, and so the terms of the 14th Amendment just don't apply. This is called the state action doctrine. The idea that the 14th Amendment on its own terms limits only state action, action by the state, by the government. 
Congress in enforcing the 14th Amendment must then be limited to prohibiting only state-sponsored acts of discrimination. You can't touch private discrimination. As Justice Bradley wrote of the 14th Amendment for a majority of the court in that case, it is state action of a particular character that is prohibited. Individual invasion of individual rights is not the subject matter of the amendment. It has a deeper and broader scope. It nullifies and makes void all state legislation and state action of every kind which impairs the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States, or which injures them in life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or which denies to any of them the equal protection of the laws. That last section of the amendment invests Congress with power to enforce it by appropriate legislation. Enforce what? To enforce the prohibition to adopt appropriate legislation for correcting the effects of such prohibited state law and state acts. This is the legislative power conferred upon Congress, and this is the whole of it. It does not invest Congress with the power to legislate upon subjects which are within the domain of state legislatures. And of course, coming later and moving along a parallel track was the doctrine of separate but equal, which we talked about on Tuesday. With these two decisions, the civil rights cases about state action and then later Plessy versus Ferguson, allowing state action that forcibly segregates people based on race under the theory that separate could be equal, we have a full retreat in many ways by the federal government from the project of Reconstruction. Listen to a clip here from a C-SPAN interview while back with the former commissioner for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, Peter Kersenow, and the former dean at Howard University Law School, Danielle Holly Walker. In their conversation, they pulled together a lot of the concepts we've been talking about in our class. Collar had just asked about John Marshall Harlan's phrase in his Plessy dissent that our Constitution is colorblind, how we should understand and think about that. Thanks. You want to take the colorblind Constitution? Um, yeah. Um, I think that, you know, when we talk about a colorblind Constitution, that's not something that uh, in the first, say, 110 or 120 years of our jurisprudence was something that you saw in any case decisions. Um, in fact, it's something that evolved over a period of time, and it came from a number of different constructions. In fact, if you take a look at the civil rights cases, and even take a look at, I mentioned Cruikshank, and there are some other cases during that period of time, we start to swerve into this notion of a people, citizens, and then we get into race. And if you look at the debate between Bradley on the one hand and a Harlan on the other, there's a real question as to what constitutes a citizen and whether or not a citizen is somebody who is part of the people. There are those who believe that people, for example, the Dred Scott case, only consisted of white Americans. People then transformed into citizens and enjoyed privileges and immunities. Then you had blacks and whites in the um, Harlan dissent, where Harlan says the 13th Amendment was not simply just an abolition of slavery, but an affirmative positive grant of a right not to be discriminated against, along with the 14th Amendment, he says. Um, we see a gradual evolution of the Constitution as being colorblind. That is, not non-discriminatory, but, aff but affirmatively giving capacity under the Constitution in a colorblind fashion. A second question. And I'll also add that I think the colorblind constitution, I'd take the caller's point to mean that it is without context, that we've begun to understand this notion of a colorblind constitution as divorcing the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment 
from their original intent, which was really to make sure that black citizens enjoyed the same benefits of citizenship. And Harlan does talk about that in his dissent as we'll come to, as we come to, especially with the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment. He says there's some things that white citizens, when they're born, they enjoy certain rights and privileges. So the ability to go to the theater, the ability to check into a public inn or to ride in whatever railroad car. And so in that sense, it is comparative, right? So this idea of what it means to come into your full rights as a citizen, when Harlan compares that, he says, these are the rights that we think of inherent to white Americans in when they're born into their citizenship. We have to begin to treat black Americans in the same way, even though it's interesting that in the Constitution is colorblind, that phraseology that happens in Plessy versus Ferguson, he starts off that entire dissent thereby talking about white supremacy and how whites will always be superior um, to black Americans in every way that you can imagine, except for when it comes to the Constitution and the way that they're treated under the law. This decision in the civil rights cases of 1883 and the kind of path dependency that we get from reasoning in specific cases is why the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is written not as an enforcement of the 14th Amendment, but as an exercise of Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. That's a story for another day, but to close this particular episode, I do want to push a bit on the concept of state action. In Justice Harlan's dissenting opinion, as Commissioner Kersnow and Dean Holly Walker had mentioned in that video clip, Harlan wrote that even if there was no 14th Amendment, Congress would still have the power to pass this law. The reason is because the nation as a whole made a decision after the Civil War to end slavery. And the institution of slavery in the United States, Harlan writes, had rested wholly upon the inferiority as a race of those held in bondage. And as a result, their freedom necessarily involved immunity from and protection against all discrimination against them because of their race in respect of civil rights, the same protections that would belong to freemen of any race. Congress then, even by its power to enforce the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery, could pass this law, according to Harlan. And even with the state action doctrine, Harlan says, we could nonetheless fairly say that individuals and corporations who engage in business within the state and open their business to the public exercise, as Harlan says, public functions. They wield power and authority under the state. So it's not so easy, Harlan suggests, to disentangle state and private actions when it comes to businesses that are open to the public. Congress here, he says, simply declares in effect that since the nation has established universal freedom in this country for all time, there shall be no discrimination based merely upon race or color in respect of the legal rights and the accommodations and advantages of public conveyances, inns, and places of public amusement. Harlan's argument does not win the day here, of course. The court strikes down the Civil Rights Act, and it takes nearly nine decades before we see another Civil Rights Act with the same ambition and scope to protect everyone in the United States in the full and equal enjoyment of public accommodations operated within their state. 